0: Hi, Hamscast listeners. Jonah here. We've got one more preview episode coming up of the Accelerate Health podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please remember to go subscribe to the podcast on their own feed. We'll put a link in the show notes. Enjoy.
1: Hello, Changemakers. We have a very exciting episode for you this week. My co-host, Indu Sabaya, president of Catalyst at Health 2.0 and senior advisor to Hims, will be speaking with Farzad Mosashari, co-founder and CEO of Adelade, and former head of the Office of National Coordinator. Dr. Farzad Mosashari will provide an expert perspective on what a 21st century public health system should look like, including real-time disease surveillance, targeted prevention, and the smart allocation of resources. He will discuss how healthcare providers can effectively partner using new technology and data-enabled primary care models. Over to you, Indu.
2: I wanted to start off like big picture, Farzad, with you and ask you a little bit about what an ideal public health system could look like in the future. And if you had to kind of just describe that to me and compare it to where we are today, what would that look like?
0: There's two parts of healthcare and public health that I think, I think about. One is the environment. And what is the context within which each of us make decisions? That's public health. That's the most powerful form of public health that's structural changes in public health. That's whether people have, you know, places where they can walk. That's whether people can afford their medications. That's whether, um, you know, a pack of cigarettes costs $4 or $14. Um, Those are the decisions. And and for me, an ideal public health system is one where all of us, it's easier to do the the good thing for for our health, than than the bad thing. Um, the second is um, almost neglected in public health discourse for many years. It's actually healthcare, which is funny for people in healthcare to think that public health doesn't think much of them. Uh, but historically. The all the stuff that we do around healthcare, other than, you know, vaccines and just a few things have been almost besides the point. It's really been those structural measures, but there was a paper recently by Cher and McWilliams that looked at the improvements in life expectancy of the 25 year period. Almost half of the gains now are from basically medications. Uh, blood pressure medications and statins and that stuff works except we only do it about half the time <laughs> and it despite all the trillions of dollars we spend on needless and harmful uh care wasteful care we don't do the things that actually make a difference so uh, that to me is the other part of it is having healthier societies but also having health care um, actually give a darn about doing the things consistently that make people live longer
2: I think there are so few people actually that straddle the worlds of healthcare and public health um, in the way that your career has taken you. Yeah. So I really love that you highlighted that tension because I think a few years ago, I wouldn't have cited drugs as the reason, you know, people are, are living longer. We would have said something about, I don't know, diet and exercise or more of that public health kind of, you know, yeah. approach. So I think that is fascinating.
0: But yeah, if we could if we could just get the behaviors right on social distancing, and the, um, and then supplement that with a tighter connection to healthcare, getting the people who need to be tested identified and tested quickly, and then hooked back into the public health system for contact tracing, that would be the formula. And it's not as if it's impossible. There there are countries that have done it, um, and we have lacked the will.
2: Speaking of both the will and the means, um, you have been an advocate for the role of technology through it all. And I would say both technology is infrastructure for healthcare and technology is infrastructure for public health. Um, where are we in that journey? Is it harder to get that data and tech uptake in public health versus healthcare? You've worn hats across the board. So, what is yeah. your lens today?
0: Um, I mean, I came of age in public health um, in the late 90s and early aughts. And um, the 9-11 attacks changed uh, public health funding for data and informatics completely. And we experienced what public health departments are experiencing today, which is a somewhat chaotic um, gush of resources that um, you want to take advantage of quickly because you know it's not going to be sustained. And I think that's um, that's the a lot of the people who are doing really really interesting things in public health informatics then migrated to moving over to work on healthcare informatics. And uh, then you know we under um, the the high tech act we spent thirty billion dollars digitizing American healthcare doctors and hospitals which was an incredible investment if you think about it, that we just like that was Tuesday on the stimulus that we just pumped the money out for nothing right we've given out 150 billion dollars in stimulus payments this year to um, to hospitals mostly and haven't done have anything to show for it um, so that was a great investment uh, but there was no equivalent investment in public health so we got a lot of EHRs and a lot of you know we set requirements for the certification for the hrs to be able to communicate with public health we sent requirements for doctors and hospitals to send data to public health but public health wasn't funded to be able to receive it and to do something really effective with it and you know we went from you know complacency to complacency in terms of and then now you know there's a pandemic as it's kind of predictable, that there would be eventually a pandemic, right? And we're like, why is public health so under-resourced? And why can't they accept this data? And why aren't there, you know, systems in place? Fix it, right? Uh, You have till October, fix it. (laughs) I just heard, you know, on the news that there's a parallel effort that they funded Deloitte and Salesforce to set up basically a COVID vaccine information system. We're going to just... Like, they're going to solve the patient identification issues that vaccine immunization registries at the state level have been struggling with and iterating on for 15 years by October. And then and then what's the leave behind? Nothing. The leave behind is nothing. The leave behind is a COVID immunization registry, not strengthening our fundamental capacity uh, for the next outbreak.
2: Sounds a lot like, in a sense, you know, the vision around kind of the democratization of data, big picture that you began. It does, it? Uh, yeah, it does. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm thinking of your words, you know, uh, back in 2010, 11, as you were leading open data and saying, we've got to make this available to everybody and uh, leverage it, and at that time you were saying leverage the spirit of the individual entrepreneur. But here you're talking about the spirit of sort of individual care providers and their relationships so I think there's let me tell
0: you they're entrepreneurial
2: yeah and you've done some of this work in rural areas too some of your data shows sort of the impact is actually higher uh, so Absolutely. speak to some of that because we've sort of ignored a lot of pockets of, of this country in a sense yeah. and uh, your data is actually I think more encouraging in some of those areas. So
0: yeah, some of our most successful uh, groups are in Mississippi and Kansas and West Virginia. And, and one of the things I love about those uh, docs is they understand what it means like to be accountable for a community. Uh, Sean Purifoy is one of only two primary care practices in Malvern, Arkansas. So he gets it. He's accountable for that population everybody who's going to see on right in the store at church on the street he could be accountable for them for their care and he can act that way and that's to me like one of our values is owning it uh, even when you don't control all the inputs right and that's such a hard thing for humans to embrace right am i going to own this or am i going to be willing to say yeah there's a thousand reasons why i i don't control this thing i can't i can't be accountable for this like I'll do my piece, sure, but don't make me accountable for it. That, like that, no one who believes that ever changed anything, right? <laughs> and so our docs act as if they can have an influence.
2: Well, you're taught in medicine to own it. I think I think how you're trained in medicine is to own it, and you know you may sign off to a colleague because you know you have to go home and go to bed but you own it as a doctor, I think. And I think that it's so interesting that this model goes back to the roots of what you're trained to do for a patient. So I think that's really interesting. So I'd love you to sort of think about then and help us see that if we have primary care that's more data enabled, we invest more in public health, we have kind of big tech there to help in a a useful way, in a pragmatic and useful way. Here we are now in this moment. How do these things stitch together today in the era of COVID and moving forward? Um, Has your vision changed because of the pandemic?
0: Well, one of the things that the pandemic did was accelerate a lot of trends. It's not necessarily creating new trends, but really accelerate. You know, like down the street here, a couple of department stores are boarded up, right? It's not, that, it's not that they're really not boarded up because like their business model was super healthy before, right, it's just that now it's like really obvious that we're no, they're never gonna reopen. Um, and I think fee-for-service showed that it's not stable and reliable, right? Like you can't, what kind of business is this? If it literally requires you to like see a person face-to-face for 15 minutes to be able to bill $84, and like in the middle of a pandemic, when we need healthcare the most, you're laying off your staff because you, you didn't bill enough visits. That's crazy. Um, and so I think that was a that was a wake up call. Uh, we're gonna have our at Allidate our best growth year ever in the midst of this pandemic when we couldn't visit practices, <laughs> when we actually CMS didn't let you start in UACO. In 21, because of the pandemic, and we're still going to have the most practice growth we've ever had, because people are realizing that they can't rely on fee for service. The other thing that we did really immediately was turn on telehealth, and it was no longer like we talked about it. Like, sure, this could be a good thing, and then it was like, no, 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 we need telehealth now. And within uh, 12 days, we went from 100 telehealth visits among our practices to 10,000 telehealth visits in 12 days over a weekend we turned on 150 practices on telehealth so those are the kinds of like radical changes that make you realize like no, no no like revolutions are possible change can happen and it can happen quickly and you can like reminding yourself like oh i can still sprint you know uh and i think healthcare showed that it can be very adaptable very quickly and things can things can change. That's mostly what I'm taking away from this COVID experience is um, these things are not givens.
2: I wanted you to comment a little bit on testing. There was an interesting exchange between you and Tom Frieden on Twitter around the purpose of testing and how it is actually misunderstood in yeah. terms of it's saving lives versus containing or tracking spread. And I'd mm-hmm. love you to just unpack the value of testing because even five months into this pandemic, I think there's still confusion around why we should test.
0: Just as I described at the top, right, that there's public health population-wide and there's individual health care, right? Um, same with testing there's a purpose of testing, which is I want to better treat this human being who's under my care as a physician trained in internal medicine. I get that. Um, and you can say, oh, uh, you know, if you're not severely ill or hospitalized, the treatment's the same. So don't get tested. Um, there's the other use of testing, which is to interrupt transmission chains. And for that, you want to test people as soon as possible and you want to test their asymptomatic contacts because you want to interrupt chains of transmission. Uh, You want them to change their behavior so that they're less likely to pass it on, and you want to change the behavior of those who they've already contacted in recent days. And this is where, again, it's baffling to me that the average delay between symptoms and being reported as positive is 7 to 10 days now. Even that data is hard to find. But if you think about that, Almost all of the people you're gonna infect, you've already infected by the time you know. So that's useless for the purpose of the public health purpose of interrupting transmission. This style of testing is useless. It doesn't matter how many tests you do. And there's like, this became like the touchstone is like, how many tests are we doing? Are we leading the world in the number of tests? And I'm like, are they useful? All right, are we testing the right people at the right time in the right way so that we can actually get public health benefit from it? And it again, the lack of strategy around this, it's anything but smart testing. Uh, Zeke Emanuel and I wrote a piece in March saying we don't just need testing, we need smart testing. And um, I'm telling you, we're not getting smart testing right now.
2: So I'd like to unpack carefully the reasons for that gap. And I think you've talked a lot about, you know, uh, on the one hand there's will there's you know then there's sort of resources and actual tools there's data and insights how how do you sort of categorize the reasons for that gap and then for cities moving forward what are the ways we begin to close that gap
0: i think one of the one of the things that we have to do and i already touched on this is there has to be sufficient public health capacity and resources It's got to be sustained. I think there needs to be kind of mandatory funding for public health preparedness at the state and local level. Not leading it to the you know they have to budget balance the budget every year. I think there should be dedicated funding. Maybe take a couple of percent of from everyone's healthcare dollars, right? Maybe there should be a, a health insurance tax of a couple of percent that is earmarked for the counties those people live in, the public health capacity in those counties, so that when pandemics do happen, as they do happen, um, there will be enough of a capacity of local responders to respond. These surveillance systems are smoke detectors. You still need firemen to go into the building and see what's going on. And if you have cut the funding, uh, year over year over year out of public health then when the fire alarm goes off there'll be no one there and we're going to spend 10 or 100 or a 1, thousand times what we would have spent in 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 the economy uh, losses in the economy um so that's the that's the hard easy answer right is um sustained local funding for, for the local responders the first responders from a public health point of view i also think that we need to do more openness with the data many you know i said it was two weeks before the city shut down but that's not true the city de facto shut down by march 14th because people did it themselves people took action themselves they didn't wait for the governor or the mayor to tell them people the restaurant visits are already down 95 percent um and we need to give people more of the tools and more of the data Um, to be able to make decisions for themselves. And I'm, as you know, been a big proponent for the open data movement. Um, And that's partly, you know, again, why I'm, uh, you know, both excited that we have the data systems we have today and frustrated that you can't get the New York City style dashboard of what's going on with syndromic data across the country. The data exists, but it's not publicly available. And that's just infuriating to me.
2: What are you? What is on your mind today? What do you get to go and do after this?
0: <laughs> yeah, we just had uh, Medicare release the results for 2019, so it's pretty good. I'm going to go talk to some reporters.
2: Did you guys do well this year?
0: We did How very, much did you save? <laughs> 100, 180 million dollars.
2: Oh my God! And that's from I remember in 2014 reading, you had launched in 2017 when you had um, just when you did a piece. Um, describing kind of Allida's early success. You still hadn't saved money yet. Am I right? It took three years three to years. start saving money. Yeah. Right? I know.
0: Now the flywheel's turning.
2: That's fantastic. So congratulations.
1: Yeah. And uh, thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you. Thank you, Indu and Farzad, for that amazing discussion. And we hope you will join us for future episodes. Until then, be bold, be you, and keep on accelerating.